1: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. In a few days, Britain will begin the official celebrations of Queen Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee, thus commemorating her sixty years on the throne. Hers is the second longest reign in English history, an extraordinary accomplishment rendered all the more impressive given the changes that have occurred within Britain, the Empire, and the world during her reign. Ever focused on duty, the- Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. In a few days, Britain will begin the official celebrations of Queen Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee, thus commemorating her sixty years on the throne. Hers is the second longest reign in English history, an extraordinary accomplishment rendered all the more impressive given the changes that have occurred within Britain, the Empire, and the world during her reign. Ever focused on duty, the Queen has largely managed to remain aloof from the increasing media speculation that has surrounded her family, and most people know surprisingly little about her beyond the institution that she represents. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Sally Smith about her new book, Elizabeth the Queen, The Life of a Modern Monarch. Hi, Sally. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, I've, um, I've I started out my career as a journalist. I worked for Time Magazine and t v Guide magazine and the New York Times what I covered primarily or exclusively really was the broadcasting business and I left daily journalism uh in the mid nineteen eighties to begin my work as a biographer, which is what I have done ever since. I have written six biographies since that time. the first one was Bill Paley, the man who built the c b s broadcasting network, so it was a story of his life as well as the rise of broadcasting. Next was uh, Pamela Churchill Harriman, who was uh, kind of like a character in a novel, an English woman who um, led a very adventurous and fascinating life in England and the continent and the U.S. and uh, evolved from being a, a very colorful courtesan to being a, a political uh, operative in Washington DC and at the end of her life our ambassador to uh France. And uh after that book I wrote a biography of Diana Princess of Wales. Uh I was asked to do that shortly after her death and um that uh came out two two years later and following that I wrote um uh, Grace and Power the Private World of the Kennedy White House which was a book about John and Jacqueline Kennedy and their circle. And following that, I wrote a, a book about Bill and Hillary Clinton's White House. And uh now I have uh, I've just published my my sixth which is a biography of Queen Elizabeth II called Elizabeth the Queen the Life of a Modern Monarch.
1: So you've done a number of books on extremely powerful icons. What drew you to the story of the Queen, and why now?
0: Well, it, it was suggested to me, but it took about a second to <laughs> say yes, because I had met her once, I uh, about nine months before Random House suggested it to me. I had met her at the British uh, ambassador's residence in Washington at a garden party when she was on a state visit here. And, uh, was fortunate enough to be introduced to her and my husband committed two protocol infractions simultaneously. First of all, you're never supposed to ask her a question, and you're certainly not supposed to ask her if she bets at the racetrack. And he proceeded to ask her if she had uh, placed a wager on Street Sense, the winner of the Kentucky Derby, which she had just been to the previous weekend. And um, she very diplomat- diplomatically let that let that slide. But there was something about the way my husband asked the question. I guess she can, he, he actually knows a, a lot about racing and um, knows how to read a race and knows knows what horses are doing when they're on the racetrack, which I certainly don't. And there was something about it that was fascinating because she kind of just twigged onto it. And the two of them uh, proceeded to kind of replay the entire race between them. And at that moment, uh, quite, quite a few of my preconceptions sort of fell away because what I saw was was her um a great sparkle I saw her her smile and her gestures and her twinkling blue eyes and what I realized later on is that I had had a brief glimpse into what her friends see all the time um, which is which is um uh, you know which is a much uh, jollier character than the very um austere and uh dignified person not that she's not dignified but the very you know sort of austere icon that we see in um public view so uh so i was fascinated not only to find out what she does um but also to 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 find out what she's really like and and to describe what she's like as a wife and a mother and a friend and how she was brought up and how she took to power and how she developed as queen over the years. So it was really two two objectives. And of course the timing of it was um I realized three years ago that this was going to be a, a very historic year. It um marks her sixtieth year on the throne and as is as, as a result she will be celebrating what is called the Diamond Jubilee there's only been one other monarch in the thousand year history of the British monarchy to to reach that uh milestone and that was her great great grandmother queen victoria who celebrated her diamond jubilee back 115 years ago in 1897 so it's a it's a, it's a quite a remarkable moment for the queen and the monarchy and so the book is coming out is out now mm-hmm.
1: Um, I loved your Princess Diana book, and upon hearing that that you' gained a great deal of cooperation from Buckingham Palace for this book, I was kind of struck that that served to kind of put the palace's stamp of approval on what you'd done with the earlier book. Did you see it in that way, or am I making that well up? i nobody <laughs> explicitly said that to me, but
0: when i when i um i was, i I spent a lot of time in the u k over the years, and have a lot of friends. A number of them were very helpful to me in uh, when I was doing my book about, about uh, Diana. And when I embarked on my research for this, I went back to, the, to, a, to a group of them, and I asked if they would help, and they very kindly said they would. And they not only introduced me to more people close to the royal family, but they also... Um, Several of them served as advocates um, for me uh, with Buckingham Palace because it's not all that easy. My first um, in- inquiry with the palace was met with a polite, "Well, have a nice, have a nice time, and I hope you enjoy your research." But we really can't help you very much. And fortunately, they they did decide to to do so. And I was told that it had, uh, you know, it had something to do with the fact that my book was uh, a fair and serious uh look at princess diana's life and that in the course of it i had been fair to the royal family and fair to diana in particular because it was written at a time when i mean, excuse me fair to charles in particular and and as well as diana but charles back when my book was published was still being fairly severely criticized um for the fact that their marriage had fallen apart So, yes, I think that probably came into play, but they are too discreet to ever have told me that specifically.
1: (laughs) How were they helpful in the course of your research? Well, what they did was
0: really they, once they um, sort of gave my project the green light, that meant that when various people I got in touch with um, called the palace, the palace basically said that, they they had no reason you know that they they were certainly free to talk to me and uh and they and they introduced me they opened doors to some very key people who were extremely helpful to me and um most importantly they um gave me opportunities to watch the queen and prince philip in a lot of different settings i traveled with them uh in the uk and Overseas, I went on a on a royal what they call a royal overseas tour to uh, Bermuda and Trinidad, and it was just um, great to see the kind of Buckingham Palace machinery on the move and what it takes to put together one of those one of those trips, and also to see really how hard she and he work when they're um, being put through their paces. At the time I traveled with them, they were 83 and 88, and they had very full days of meeting and greeting, and um, I was fairly exhausted just following them. Um, so, the palace helped in a lot of different ways. At one point, when I was I was um, trying to find out a little bit more about, for example, how Prince Philip uh, developed his role. You know, he got married to the Queen and, in 1947, and then In 1952, um, her father died. Her father was King George VI, who we all know from the King's Speech, and he died quite young at age 56, so she became queen at 25, and her husband really had to carve out a role for himself. He had been a naval officer, and he was an alpha alpha man and alpha male, and, and... not really accustomed to the notion of um walking two steps behind her although he has subsequently said um that supporting her has been uh, the most important thing he's done in his life but at the beginning it wasn't that easy and i was trying to find out how he how he developed his interests and um which turned out to be quite wide ranging um he in addition to supporting her has over the course of his time um the 64 years of their marriage has uh has has, has developed a, a really impressive portfolio of charities and causes and um and so I the Buckingham Palace gave me a couple of books of speeches that he'd written in the late 40s and early 50s and it and it really was um an eye opener to see and he wrote them all he always has written his speeches and, um, everything from promote, promotion of technology and science to physical fitness, um, and, uh, you know, just, a, a, a ornithology, you know, just the kind of things that you wouldn't expect him to be involved in. And, um, he was quite ahead of the time in in terms of his promotion of conservation and the environment he was he was talking about preserving the amazon rainforest decades before his son prince charles was so those kind that kind of thing was very helpful
1: your book also provides a very interesting look at how vital a role the queen's religion has played in her life and this hasn't come up too much in the earlier biographies can you talk a bit about it
0: well it was it was fascinating to me because For the Queen religion, she's the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. That's one of her, that is one of her official roles. But, um, with her, uh, her faith is, is, is very deeply felt but lightly worn. Uh, I interviewed a number of, um, members of the clergy ranging from Archbishop of, former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, to Scottish, um, ministers and and various um Anglican clerics and um and they and they described to me, first of all, she was she was steeped in um the Anglican faith from her childhood. Her mother taught her the collects and the Psalms and the Book of Common Prayer. She read Bible stories to her when she was a child and George Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury said that the Queen knows her prayer book backwards and forwards. Um her mother, the Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother always prayed on her knees and um although no one is absolutely certain that's what the Queen does, the assumption is is, is pretty reasonable that she does that as well. But um she uh she views her 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 role um she sort of equates faith and duty, and she doesn't see it as a burden, but as something that uh, George Carey described as, as glad service. And he he and others said to me that because of her faith, she's able to sort of take anything the world throws at her. Um, another one of her, her uh, advisors said to me that she really has... N- no illusions about what can and can be changed in the world, and, and and she has sort of an acceptance of the way life deals its cards, which is which is kind of rare, and uh, it's partly a result of her religious conviction and partly life experience.
1: Um, one thing that emerged for me in the book was was the how committed the Queen is to the Commonwealth. Um, and the idea of that. For our non-British listeners, can you explain what the Commonwealth is and also why it's of such great importance to the Queen?
0: Well, the Commonwealth is the um, really, m- mostly the former British Empire, uh, and it evolved over, you know, starting in the late 1940s um, when when countries that were uh, part of the British Empire became became republics and they elected democratic presidents, although um a lot of them still maintain the queen as their head of state um but there, it started out as a group of nine um uh, britain obviously canada australia new zealand south africa pakistan india um and then it grew to you know to almost to, to 54 by the early 21st century and it is a, it's not like the United Nations necessarily. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a group of countries that kind of operate as a forum for good government, for education, for economic development, to promote human rights. And they meet every two years and, um, and discuss issues of the day. And the Queen, so the Queen is not An executive in charge of the Commonwealth. She is the head of the Commonwealth. So what she does is, uh, what she has done over the years is she has used her unique status to work behind the scenes with the leaders of the Commonwealth nations, particularly when they were facing difficult problems, such as apartheid in South Africa. And and used her kind of hidden hand as a as a force to push to to prod the um very the countries to um act in the interests of human rights for example and she i think because this this collection of countries and it's a you know it it accounts for i don't know three quarters of the world's population. Um, it, you know, originated as the, as the British Empire. She's very proud of the fact that it, that, that all, that so many of the countries, not all, some of them have been, um, have been ruled by autocrats like, um, like Mugabe in, um, in Zimbabwe. But for the most part, um, you know, they have evolved from empire into, into, um, well functioning governments. And so, she's proud to see the way a lot of these countries that were formerly part of her her father and her grandfather and her great great grandmother queen victoria's empire um have um you know have turned out have turned out quite well
1: uh, in the book the stories where that that joy that you described um the twinkle in her eye come out most frequently seem to be the ones about her in, interacting with horses. Can you talk about her the unique relationship that she has with horses?
0: Well, yes, it's been a it's been a huge uh part of her life and it, it is uh it's both a passion and a refuge. She learned about uh bre- horses, breeding horses from, from her father when she was growing up and she learned how to ride when she was three years old. She had to develop equestrian skills for her job, actually. She had to learn how to ride side saddle for the annual birthday parade and Trooping the Color, which she did for many years until she had, you know, she finally... In, in a carriage, as opposed to riding side saddle on her horse, and for her, it was um, it was a way of developing um, certain interesting character traits, you know, and, and all, besides athleticism, um, a kind of courage and an ability to keep a cool head in danger, and particularly when she was younger, um, you know, and and being being queen you have people around you all the time and when she was up there on her horse and riding through the fields and vaulting fences it was a kind of temporary liberation um, from from all the restrictions that she has in her official life but she loves breeding her horses and racing them and she uh, I I interviewed many people who work with her trainers and the people who, who run her stud farm and uh and her former her former racing managers and um it's it's a world that she where she can be herself for one thing one of one of her friends said horses are are the greatest levelers in the in the world and and because they are the most important these large somewhat mystifying cre- creatures um but she she has she has encyclopedic knowledge of um of the of 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 all the aspects of of breeding and the the genealogy of all these horses she also loves she's very good at naming she's really um she's good at puzzles and charades and word games and she um loves to come up with kind of fascinating uh combinations uh, she i mean one that kind of springs to mind is she she named one of her cults lost marbles and um, the mare was amnesia and the stallion was Lord Elgin. And so it's, you know, she's, she's got that wit about her. Um, but it was, um, it was really, uh, one of the most fascinating things I, I explored because it, you know, it, it, it's, there's more, much more to it than it appears on the surface. Um, and she is a master of all these, details of what it takes for uh you know for a for a horse to be um a good runner. And um and in the course of learning about this world of hers, this equine world, I discovered um one of her most interesting friendships, which is with um California horse horse whisperer, a trainer named um Monty Roberts, and she has become an extremely good friend of his, and of course, their common ground is is um, is their knowledge of horses. But um, she uh, she invites him to Windsor Castle or Sandringham uh, every year, and he's he's a he's a really very close friend. And she gave him one of her honors last year.
1: She's also involved in the equine world in the U.S. as well, right? Absolutely, With the derby yes. And-
0: mm-hmm. Well, um, that was another line of inquiry that other biographers haven't particularly been um interested in and, and uh, that is the relationship with the United States, um which is uh far more extensive than I think most people realize. She's been here eleven times and five of those visits were for private holidays. Um the most time she's ever spent on vacation outside of her own estates. And and four of those, or five of those, well all five of those took her to Kentucky where she sent quite a few of her mares over the years, uh, to be bred with, uh, with stallions. And her first visit to Kentucky was in 1984. She also went to Wyoming because she wanted to spend some time in the mountains. But her visits to Kentucky again reflect her comfort in this um, this world of of horses and people who were with her tell me that she is they you know her Eng- English people who were with her have said that she's more relaxed when she when she is was on those trips in Kentucky than um, than any time they'd ever seen her. Uh, people tended not to call her ma'am or your majesty. And um, she laughed and and just could really relax with uh, with that group of people.
1: And she doesn't wear a helmet when she rides. Why is that? She does not wear
0: a helmet. It's something that has puzzled people for years. And because she is, by nature, quite a cautious person, she's very sensible, she's prudent and... I remember when I started out working on the book, people said, you must find out why she doesn't wear a hard hat. And I got to know one of her trainers in Balding and spent some time at his, at his stables in, in Berkshire. And so I said, well, why, you know, it just seems so sensible for her to wear a hard hat. I mean, she would race down the racecourse course at Ascot when she was a younger woman, just wearing a headscarf. There's a, there's a joke, actually, at, um, uh, that one of the staff at Windsor Castle told me that the only thing that comes between the queen and her heir is an Hermes scarf. So I asked um, Ian, Ian Balding, I said, well, why? And he said, well, he was out riding with her one day at, Windsor Castle, and he said, Ma'am, you of all people should wear a hard hat. Why don't you wear one? And she said, You don't understand. You don't have to have your hair done the way I do. <laughs> and, and that wasn't, and, and it wasn't an expression of vanity. What it was was sheer practicality. She knows she has to be ready when she gets off her horse and, Walks back into the Windsor Castle that she she will have to meet somebody, and so it's it's um it, it's kind of a, a simple and practical answer, but uh, n- nobody had ever explained
1: it until now. <laughs> Um, Prince Philip has been pretty vocal about the fact that he doesn't read the newspapers, and yes. yet the Queen apparently reads them all, and I could not imagine her sitting down with a copy of the Daily Mail. I thought that was a great detail. <laughs> well,
0: she does, because she knows that she needs to understand what people are talking about. She, uh, When she goes to breakfast every morning, they're all laid out for her. The first one she reads is a, is a racing paper because she wants to keep up with the horses, but she reads, typically, she has at least uh, in hand she has the the times and the telegraph and and several of the tabloids including the Daily Mail which has a large female readership that that follows the monarchy closely and the Queen is aware of that
1: Um. over the years there have been rumors about Prince Philip's infidelity and you doubt those why is that
0: well I doubt I doubt the rumors Mainly because there's been no evidence, but also people close to philip and and the queen have, have uh i i talked to them about it and um and they said that there i mean there are obviously you know he's he was and even at age ninety still is a you know a very um dashing man and he Likes, you know, he likes to flirt, or use, you know, he's always he was even flirting, I think, with Pippa on the balcony <laughs> at the <laughs> wedding last year, and and that was often m- misinterpreted, I think. But one of their one of their cousins, um, Patricia Mountbatten, said that, uh, you know, he 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 wouldn't, he he was so devoted to her, has always been so devoted to her that he 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 wouldn't do anything hurt her like that, and that obviously would hurt her and um, so various you know friends and people close to them have um have just said that it that it simply isn't isn't true and um, you know there have been a list of names of various women that women that has been tossed out there but um but there was there's really no evidence, and I know I'm not the only. Biographer who's made inquiries and and it and nothing has uh, nothing has confirmed that
1: in two thousand two the Queen mother and Princess Margaret passed away about six weeks apart yeah uh, how has the queen changed since then well there are theres there are quite a few people who think that she's um i
0: mean it was it was really one of the you know saddest times of her life within the space of six weeks, she lost two of the people who were closest to her, um, who'd known her her whole life, obviously. And she talked to the queen mother and her sister on the phone virtually every day. Um, their deaths co- coincided with her golden jubilee, and she, um, in typical style, kept on and carried on. And... But one change that um in particular was I think um her mother, the Queen Mother was the sort of merry widow for fifty years. She was always smiling. She um uh, because she you know, she didn't have the responsibilities that her daughter had, she um had, you know, had she had the latitude to be um you know, to be a little bit more uh kind of open and and uh, amusing in in her public in her public persona and she was also the beloved grandmother figure and when she died that love was transferred to um to her daughter uh there was a very very poignant moment after the Queen Mother's body was taken to Westminster Hall for to for lying in state, and the Queen and Prince Philip and her family went there for a very short service. And as they left in their car, there were huge crowds of people, and suddenly, spontaneously, the crowd started clapping. And this is, hadn't ever happened before. And they were they were in that moment sort of transferring their affection over to the Queen. She had always been admired, she'd always been respected, but she really uh, became the kind of national grandmother at, at that moment. And friends that I talked to said that she, after obviously the period of mourning, she they felt that she tended to smile more in, in public and was interested in doing... Um, not different kinds of things, but she she um i I called her the sort of royal bucket list that she was going through i mean do, doing things like uh taking the train when she when when she left for her annual Christmas break taking the regular passenger train as opposed to the royal train and uh and there was just um a kind of a lightness that people saw in her. Um that hadn't been quite as evident having your you know she was extremely devoted to her mother and and but it's not many people who who um who's- one of whose whose parents live until you're seventy five and that's how old the the queen was when her mother died and so you know she was more suddenly she was more on her own and um and people said that it did did have did seem to, to have an effect on her.
1: In recent years, the palace has made a concerted effort to modernize, and I think this is one of the really interesting parts of the book, is that you delve into this, the the palace as a, as a business, and how they've they've changed. Um, and you have a fascinating passage on the Marmite theory of monarchy. Yes. Can you talk a bit about what they've done to modernize? Well, they've always tried to keep pace with change,
0: and uh, I think it's safe to say that that, that somewhat accelerated after the death of Princess Diana. And during that very moving speech that the Queen gave the night before Diana's death, she said there are lessons to be learned from the way Diana lived and and her, and her death. And after, um, in, the, in the year after Diana's death, the palace did something unusual. They, um, for the first time, hired a very prestigious pollster, because they were very concerned that the perception was that they were out of touch, so they hired a pollster and and he um, uh, conducted surveys to find out you know what people thought of the monarchy and um and they they could see areas where they needed to to improve to show that they were in touch but the private secretary at the time, a man named Robin Janbrin, um, developed what he called the Marmite Theory of the Monarchy, and it's based on the very familiar and popular food called Marmite that has a distinctive green and yellow and red label. And you look at a Marmite label now and you think, that's the same Marmite label it's always been. But if you go back and you look at the Marmite label 50 years ago, you'll see that it's actually quite different, but that the changes have been incremental over time. And that, uh, to him and to others who work for the Queen, uh, has sort of been the model. They They want to change. They want to move with the times, but they want to do it incrementally and not too visibly. There was a moment around that time when they took the Queen to McDonald's, and one of the tabloids took a photograph of the royal limousine out underneath the McDonald's sign. <laughs> and it was, um, they realized that this was, first of all, you know, an unfortunate juxtaposition, but also that this might have been just pushing the Queen a little bit too far. You know, she, one of the, one of the, um, one of the things that the Queen has always had to be aware of um, was keeping a delicate balance if she if she seems too mysterious and distant she she kind of loses her connection to her subjects but if she seems too much like everyone else she loses her mystique so she has adjusted in interesting ways mm-hmm. 10 years ago 15 years ago she might have visited a school and stood in the door doorway and looked in the room now she's more likely to come in and sit down and talk to the children and, um, you know, be in closer contact with them.
1: Looking back on her reign so far, what do you see as the Queen's legacy? Well, I think her legacy
0: is the way she has led. The example she has um, uh, set, she is... um and and the fact that she has modernized the monarchy i think that's been very important but um, a lot of what she's done is you know is known to all the people who've had their confidential audiences with her um i think she's kept she's kept the commonwealth together when it almost fractured that's a very important part um she has but she has um through her behavior she has sort of lived according to the values that she represents and she has also been a unifying force um, above politics. Uh, she It's no accident that since they first started taking uh, kind of popularity polls, if you were, back in 1969, she's had um, an 80% approval rating. She's been very careful to remain neutral, to remain above politics, and to be a unifying force for a country. Now, Britain is very different from a, from the way it was back in 1952. It's um, when she took the throne. It's um, you know, it's a multicultural society, and she has um, taken symbolic steps to show her recognition of that when she had her golden jubilee. Back ten years ago, she went into a mosque for the first time and she visited a Hindu temple and, um, you know, she, she showed, um, she showed her appreciation of these aspects of, um, British society that have, that have changed. So it's a kind of multi-layered legacy that she leaves, but it's, um, it's, it's mostly that she has, um, you know, she has, influenced wisely and she is also led by an example that um is hard for other people to match
1: to end on a lighthearted note uh the queen's purse gets a lot of attention what's in there <laughs> oh the handbag well i have three eyewitnesses and
0: uh, the most the most unlikely one was um was the um, manager of the whole city football team, who sat next to her at uh, luncheon that I attended, and I was watching them talk, and they were having a very animated conversation. And I spoke to him afterwards, and and I said, um, "So did you get a look in her in her in her handbag?" And he said, "Yes, I got a very good look." And he said, "Well, you know, it's sort of like sort of like what you'd expect. It had um, sweetener for her uh, coffee. It had." Uh, handkerchiefs, it had um, uh, glasses, it, you know, it had a coin purse, um, and so it, there's nothing kind of mysterious about it, One, of, but there is lipstick, makeup, those kinds of, you know, those kinds of items, I, and one of her ladies-in-waiting said to me, you know, you have to remember that she is a very practical woman, and the reason she always has her handbag with her is that she doesn't want to be without those kinds of things. She wants to have, uh, um, you know, a Kleenex or a comb, and she obviously always has a reading glasses. Or, uh, and, but she needs these practical items close at hand. She can't just rely on having a lady in waiting carry them. The most interesting item in her bag um, it has been as a bag hook, and. Um, I spoke to somebody who had been at a dinner party with her at one of the queen's cousin's houses, and she watched Transfixed as the queen reached into her handbag and pulled out this little suction cup and actually discreetly spat into it and then took it and attached it to the bottom of the table. And on on this little suction cup was a hook, and she put her handbag on it so another evident another example of her practicality she also has the um uh somewhat i don't know people might say unexpected habit after after meals of applying her lipstick in public and people are always surprised when they see that um am I spoke to somebody who'd been at a, a ladies' lunch in Washington with uh, with Laura Bush, who did the same thing after lunch, and, um, and she turned and she said to the person next to her, it's all right, I'm allowed to do this. The Queen told me it was fine to do.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Elizabeth the Queen, The Life of a Modern Monarch. I know it's a horrible question to ask an author when their book has only just come out, but do you have any idea what you're going to be writing about next?
0: Not just yet, not just yet. Uh, I have a little work to do on, on, um, on this book and getting the word out, but I'm talking about a couple of different ideas. The Queen's was a tough act to follow. <laughs> um, she was fascinating to write about, and also I have to say, an incredibly admirable person, and, um, I found as hard as these books are to write, and the, Thousands of hours they take, a lot of it in um, in solitary. Um, that that she was really quite inspiring to write about. The more I learned about her, the more there was to admire.
1: What's well, a great book? It was really a joy to read. Thank, Thank you so you. much. I've been speaking today with Sally Battle Smith about her new book entitled Elizabeth the Queen: The Life of the Modern Monarch, which is now out in hardback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.